Hello and welcome to Seafood Matters podcast, the voice of the UK seafood industry. I'm your host Jim Cowie. Hi there, welcome to Seafood Matters podcast. I'm delighted to be in speaking today with Ray Hilburn uh, from the, I think, the University of Washington, if I think correctly. But uh, welcome to the show, uh, Ray, and I would love you to tell our listeners just about your, where you've come from, what you've done, and how you're doing now. Okay, thanks. It's <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, um, so my background is I uh, started off my career as a terrestrial ecologist. I did a PhD in 1974 at the University of British Columbia working on population dynamics of field mice. Um, and <clears throat> over time, I moved into fisheries. I was working for the Canadian Department of of uh, in fisheries and environment on uh, both things in uh, in the fish world and in the land world. Uh, and my my specialty was population dynamics and particularly the the, the quantitative parts of that. That is uh, the you know as a, an analysis of the numbers. And what I found over time was that the fisheries problems were far more interesting. Um, and, uh, and there was actually a place that, that the uh, managers were actually using what I did. So uh, I, I sort of transitioned to working largely on, on fisheries, but not exclusively, um, uh, all the way through, uh, through the mid-1980s. And then I went for two years to an international organization that does the science for tunas in the Western Pacific and spent two years working on tunas, um, and then came to the University of Washington in 1987. So that's now 35 years uh, that I've, I've been here as a professor, uh, uh, teaching courses and writing books about the status of fish populations and how to manage them. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I, I Originally, my was most of my work was in how you estimate the status of fish stocks and their the, what uh, the how the allowable harvest. Um, but for the last, uh, then I sort of transitioned to more uh, a lot more work on global status theories, trying to understand what's going on, where, and what the causes of why some stocks are doing well and some are not. And in the last uh, ten years or so. Uh, an additional focus on the environmental impacts of food production and and uh, really started out by just comparing fisheries to yeah. agriculture um, uh, and, uh, and asking which of these is, is, is has a lower environmental footprint. Yeah, yeah. I've read some of your pieces and articles on that and I have to say it's one of the things that uh, I have to say I like about it is your approach, which is not this doom and gloom, and uh, you know, you and you you actually include nature in it, which a lot of 
people don't. And I don't know if it's the same in the US, but in this area, this country, the Greenpeace and uh, bodies like that, everything they talk about is overfishing. It's And our, our fleet, Ray, is about a fraction of the size it was. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm aware of that. And uh, um, well, part of the, uh, and I, I'd say it's that my approach isn't the lack of doom and gloom. That's the, really the results of the work that we've done. So that's sort of how, how I move from really the technical aspects of fisheries management to looking at the big picture. Is uh, back in 2006. Uh, a paper appeared in Science Magazine. It made the front page of the New York Times, made the BBC Evening Television News that said if current trends continue, all fish stocks would be collapsed by 2048. And that was so contrary to my experience in fisheries that I and quite a few others wrote critiques of that of that 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 paper's claim. And ultimately, I collaborated with uh, several of the authors of that paper to say, look, let's get together and really understand what the trend in fish stocks is. And we did that collaboratively. And in 2009, we published a paper together showing that when we looked at the abundance of fish stocks, where we had good data, um, uh, that they weren't declining on average, that they were quite stable. And since then, we've expanded that database and uh, and kept it more or less current. And uh, we can show now that uh, for the half of the fisheries of the world where we have data on abundance, they're actually going up, not down. Um, certainly overfishing was a problem quite globally in the, in the 90s. I mean, certainly in Europe, I would say probably most European fisheries were, were subject to overfishing. Uh, that's probably still true for the Mediterranean fisheries, but uh, European Atlantic fisheries uh, overfishing is, is has been dramatically reduced. Certainly not eliminated, uh, and on average, European fisheries, Atlantic fisheries, which are the big ones, are increasing. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And what? what how do you? How do you? What's your science? Well, for, for those kinds of, of analysis, we basically assemble all the assessments done by national international fisheries agencies. So this is what's called a stock assessment. And what they do is they use all of the data on catches uh, from scientific surveys on age and length. Uh, those are the dominant uh, items. And they put all that together. Uh, and come up with a best estimate of the trend in abundance, catch, and fishing pressure, uh, uh, har har the fraction harvested, as well as set targets for what the, that what the abundance should be and what the um, fishing pressure should be. Uh, and and so what we've done is we've simply assembled all of those. So in the case of the UK, it's pretty well all done by uh, ICES, the international agency that does Northeast Atlantic fisheries. And they, they do assessments of almost all the major fisheries of 
European Atlantic uh, uh, on a regular basis, and we simply download their data and then add that to the same kind of data from the U.S., from Canada, from the, all the countries, uh, from the international tuna agencies, um, from FAO, and all the places, and put all that data together. And as I say, we now we cover about half of the world's fish catch. What we don't have is is reliable trend data for Southeast Asia. That's the big gap in our data. Okay, yeah. The We have a situation in the UK just now where, you're right, as you say, ICES, uh, uh, the government uses. And uh, for example, this one species, cod. Now, ICES are... ICES have uh, recommended a 44% increase in the cod quota for 2023, next year. Now, some fishermen say, well, okay, 44% seems a lot, but it's 44% of what's starting as a very little, little figure because it's been reduced so much over in the past few years. But uh, so 44% ICES are uh, recommending as an increase in the cod quota for the UK for next year. And at the same time, we've got, as I said, bodies like Greenpeace and uh, Marine Conservation Society, people like that, saying that it's overfishing and it's been, and it's almost an extinction. Now, adding that two together, our fishermen just now are finding there's so much cod on the grounds, even the lobster and crab creel fishermen are catching cod in their creels. Yeah, well, I'm glad I didn't. I wasn't aware that there'd been a, a real boom in cod, uh, in, in the, at least in the, the southern cod stocks. I know Iceland's been doing well, Barents Sea has been doing well. Um, so that that's that's really good news, but I mean you have to appreciate that that Greenpeace makes its money by scaring people about the state of the ocean, uh, and 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 they're you know they they have they have no use for science unless it happens to tell them what they what what is their narrative, and that's true of, of some of the environmental NGOs, but certainly not all. There's some very responsible environmental NGOs, and I work very closely with uh with with some some of some of their staff um but uh as you as you say you know for some of the ngos scaring the public is how they make their money and unfortunately they're good at it because they've got a voice and the pu the public wear it oh yeah 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 but uh um and and that's a, that's a, just an ongoing problem and and one of the other problems is that for so long that their message has been pretty successful. And as I said, you know, in the 1990s, it was it was largely true. We, I mean, things were not going extinct, but uh, we were overfishing that there's a whole generation of young uh, of young people have gone through university, gone through for secondary school. They've gone through university being told that the oceans are being emptied of fish. And many of them are now uh, <clears throat> working for these NGOs, or they're working, uh, some of them are working even in, gov in government, uh, and they've come in with this 
with this predilection to think that uh, that the oceans are being emptied of fish. Um, so we, but but we've certainly made. <clears throat> I would say we've made a lot of progress. That um, that <clears throat> almost the entire science community, including many who would have you know said the oceans are being emptied of fish, will now accept that in places where we are managing our fisheries intensively, stocks are rebuilding. And and uh, so I, I consider that a major major change in perspective over the last fifteen years. Yeah, and when you talk about the global uh, trends and this the stats you come up with, is that multi-species or single species? Well, I mean, um, um, all of our analysis has been looking at trends species and area specifically you know so I, I think we have the data on cod atlantic cod in 15 regions so we look at each of those and and they're often different so as i said icelandic cod barrent sea cod have been doing well for several decades uh western uh atlantic cod none of them are doing well um the big one that collapsed in the 1990s, the so-called Northern Newfoundland cod, has been rebuilding, but it's not nearly where uh, everybody would like to see it. Um, so uh, then we, but we take all these individual assessments and we, we put them together to say, okay, what is the big trend? Are stocks on average increasing or are they on average decreasing? And on average, where we have data, again, missing South and Southeast Asia, uh, they're increasing. Yeah, what's your views on uh, some on the some stocks or predator stocks? Um, well, I mean that's that's true. <laughs> I mean some uh, you know some some fish eat other fish, uh, and so uh, one of the things that the people who study ecosystem interactions suggest is that. Uh, we have typically fished the predatory fish harder than uh, than the, the 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 lower fish, the sometimes called forage fish, um, and certainly in the temperate regions, uh, that pressure is quite different. Uh, and the uh, the the ecos the people who study these things suggest that the abundance of their the prey species has actually increased because we have fished their predators down. Uh, so there was a paper coming out of University of British Columbia about 10, 12 years ago, uh, entitled something like 100 Years of Change in Oak and e Ocean Ecosystems, that looked at the predatory fish, and it said that they probably declined by 60% or so in the last 100 years. And, uh, and, and remember, that's the level that you would predict would produce maximum sustainable yield. It's about somewhere between 30 and 50% of their former abundance. But that the, the things they eat, the so-called forage fish, would be twice as abundant now. Um, and, uh, you know, I have to admit I'm a little skeptical because you remember what that's because there are so many more forage fish in the ocean, either in numbers or biomass than there are of their predators, you know, it's a, sort of a 10 to 1 ratio. That says there's more fish in the ocean now than 100 years ago, which 
Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to other people who this is the more of their specialty and they're a little skeptical of that. But the idea that 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 the, the prey species have increased because we've differentially fished their predators, I think, has a lot of um, a lot of support. Do you think temperatures have a hand in it? Water temperatures? Yeah, well, water temperatures changing and, uh, you know, so we're seeing climate change is causing a lot of changes in fisheries. The, the two things are in, in almost in general, fish are moving towards the poles. They're following the temperature as it gets warmer. They're getting going farther north in the northern hemisphere. They're going farther south in the southern hemisphere. The other thing that's changing is uh, some stocks are, are benefiting from the warming and some are losing. Uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, two of the fisheries I'm very familiar with here in the U.S., the two of the most important fisheries in the United States, one is, uh, is salmon, sockeye salmon. Uh, I think it's the fourth most uh, economically valuable fishery in the U.S. And we have just had a record year. There was more sockeye, we caught more sockeye salmon this year than at any time in history. And the, uh, and wow. we couldn't catch them all. There was a lot of them out there. Um. At the same time, 100 miles away, they've had to close uh, two of our major crab fisheries um, because they've had uh, they've had a terrible uh, uh, last couple of years have been terrible for them. And the scientists who work on it believe that's because of the what we call the marine heat wave that it just was too hot for them. Whereas for our sockeye salmon, the warmer conditions have been good. That's why the, the temperature that it's felt in this country or, or this area, why the northern, like a, if you could imagine, say north of Scotland, by Shetland, up by Faroe, Faroe Islands and Iceland, that's why, this, that's why cod is, some, some fishermen are saying there's cod uh, where they've never seen it before in abundance. Yeah, I, I was in the Shetlands in uh, in April, and I, I heard them say that they were just having trouble, uh, you know, matching their because their the quotas they have were really designed for the distribution of fish at the time the European uh, the Common Fisheries Policy was designed, and and so the the quotas have gotten out of sync that they've got too much of some things uh, and too little of others. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there were fears at one stage that there was maybe the reason I asked you about the predator stock, because they reckon that whiting, whiting classed as a predator stock, and with the mesh size, any increase in mesh size would mean that mature, although maybe immature cod would escape so would mature because it's a smaller size and overall it's whiting mature whiting would escape and they would be eating the baby cod and haddock and stuff but there was a study done on it and they found no a cod or haddock in the stomachs of the whiting is that right now well that's you know that's something that has to be done very regionally and specifically. And uh, I mean, we have an issue with our, our biggest stock, the second most valuable fishery in the United States, no, third most, uh, 
uh, Alaska Pollock. So we catch about 1.3 million tons. So that's a, that's a lot of fish. Um, and they seem they're, they're very big predators on their own juveniles. Uh, and so uh, one of the concerns is that sometimes we see the population increase and get large, and then that really whacks down the recruitment in subsequent years. And uh, so that's that's a subject of a lot of uh, a lot of interest. Um, I've had a scientist from Iceland tell reckon that that can be a sign of overpopulation. Well, that's what some people are arguing that that we should not let the Pollock population get that big because it's going to reduce the future recruitment to the uh, to the population. I, I, I'm not sure how widely accepted that is, but it's certainly a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, without other species, uh, uh, we have a situation here as well. Uh, there's industrial fishing of sand eels uh, by Danish boats, and mainly it's for use on in, in agriculture, feeding feed feeding pigs and uh, fertilizer and stuff. And the feeling with fishermen is that that's the feed, that's the fish's food, and if that if that wasn't, if they were allowed to not be worth of, they weren't, I mean, there's, I think it's 80, over 80,000 ton is their quota this year. And, and I just feel, what's your thoughts on the principle that that could be food for our fish rather than for pig farms? Well, we've, we've done a lot of work looking at the impact of fishing uh, what are called forage fish, things like sand eels, sardines, herring, anchovies, um, much of which uh, it goes both into human consumption and into uh, fish meal and fish oil. Uh, we've looked specifically at the impact of the abundance of the, of the forage fish on their predators, both fish and uh, birds and uh, marine mammals. And we find very little relationship that uh, the first the, the forage fish abundance is almost totally driven by the environment fishing fishing plays very little role in the actual abundance of those of those stocks uh, I mean on sometimes when the quotas get out of whack and the stock has some bad years fishing can drive the population down a lot faster but uh, in general uh, there, there is very little correlation between the abundance of the food and the, uh, the, 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 six, the growth rate of the predators. That's just an empirical observation that we've uh, published several papers on. So I'm, I'm skeptical that there is a tight connection. Almost all the arguments for a tight connection uh, uh, have been um, mostly based on uh, on 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 models uh, although I, there are certainly some some exceptions uh, mostly in the bird world uh, there are clearly some bird populations that are very dependent upon the the forage fish in around their nesting sites um, but uh, but more broadly for for fish I would be 
skeptical because there's a, you know, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of, of food out there. And usually uh, if you look at the stomach contents of, a, of, of the fish in particular, when uh, let's say sand eels go down, they simply switch and, and feed on something else. But again, all of these things need to be looked at individually uh, in, uh, uh, you know, case, case by case. And we've just done a big survey around the world for all the data sets we could find, and we don't find much relationship. Uh, okay. So you, so you, you don't see, uh, yeah, yeah possibly would justify the fact that they're giving a quota out. But yeah, certainly there's, uh, there've been, been, uh, I mean, there's a, a lot of people who think we should not fish all of these forage fish, you know, sardines, herrings, mackerel, sand eels, and uh, because of the benefits they provide to ecosystems. And all we've done is simply looked and saying, what's the evidence that that really affects their predators? And we don't find a lot. There are, in some cases, there is, but in general, uh, it hasn't. It hasn't seemed to make much difference. Okay, okay. We sometimes find here that fish can be thin and out of condition at times of the year when it, they should be f fatter and mm -hmm. far more. Condi better condition and it's all often thought feared that it is something to do with the f available food oh that 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 i mean that's a very likely explanation but there's lots of i mean it could be a combination of uh of what the, what their food is it could be just the just the distribution of food it could be that where where their traditional fish food species are has changed and they're not in the right place at the right time. And it could be, certainly you see fish tend to grow slower when there are lots of them. So they're competing, they're competing for food. Um, yeah. One of the important species on that, on, on with us around our shores is the herring because the, we have a saying just it's just finished now, just maybe a few weeks. They call them spawny spawnies spawnies. Mm. And it was haddock, spawny haddock, but they're actually the herring have spawned and hake and herring and a haddock and species like that. You know, when their fishermen are getting them, they're full of herring spawn. Mm. Yeah, um, that's you know, I'm, I mean, you know, it's a it, in, out in the ocean, almost everything eats everything else. It seems like any anything that's in the same place and big enough to put in your mouth, you're going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've, uh, there's been there's been I'm sure you've seen it in some ways yourself. There's been uh, recordings here. We cod with coke can. can Coke cans in their stomach. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> mm -hmm. If we can ask you about the your points of view on the as I said, yeah, 2016 debacle with Greenpeace, where you were attacked, uh, 
or broadsided for your defending the fishing industry. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember the day. It was a uh, 11th of May, 2016, and 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 Greenpeace launched a very uh, uh, aggressive uh, uh, campaign, uh, specifically against me arguing that I had failed to disclose funding from the fishing industry in my scientific research, um, and uh, certainly um, I. Well, let me just step back. I, I it, it, over the years, I had inherited two research programs that had been significantly funded by the fishing industry. Um, both one of them was started in 1946 on salmon in Alaska, um, uh, and the other uh, was started in about 1990 in a collaboration between my department and the New Zealand fishing industry. And in both cases. These were started by other par people in my department, but when they left the department, I sort of inherited them. So I had been directing these two, uh, these two research programs that had uh, uh, significant funding from the fishing industry. And uh, Greenpeace uh, said I had not disclosed that uh, when I published scientific papers that they were funded by the fishing industry. And I was able to show that indeed I had disclosed it if it was funded by the fishing industry. Now Greenpeace came back and said, well, because I've received funding by the fishing industry, I always have a conflict of interest and I need to, uh, to make that, even if the research had received no funding by the fishing industry, I have to say, but I'm, you know, I am guilty of receiving funding by the fishing industry. Um, now the, hype, the, the University of Washington did an investigation um, major uh, national inter international journals uh, I, I can't remember I think science nature and proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences all went over and agreed that where I had been funded by the fishing industry I had uh, I had declared that um, so uh, you know uh, and also uh, uh, I have to say that uh, my colleagues in the uh, in the environmental NGOs really came to my rescue as I know several of them said they were called by journalists wanting to know how serious this was. And they said, no, uh, you know, uh, he's he's a straightforward, good, good scientist. So um, and that 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 totally, uh, totally went away. Um, but the only actually it's an interesting anecdote. The only journal that asked for a retroactive declaration of conflict was a journal called Public Library of Science. And I had been one of about 10 authors on a paper looking, uh, asking the very simple question, is the, uh, are stocks certified by the Marine Stewardship Council in better shape than stocks that are not? And it seems pretty obvious. And the answer was obvious. Yes, on average, stocks certified by the Marine Stewardship Council are in better shape than stocks that are not. Now, I had not declared a conflict of interest. But the lead author on the paper worked for the Marine Stewardship Council. Okay, so when we submitted the paper, he declared, I've got a conflict of interest. I work for the MSC and this paper is about the MSC. And the journal came back and said, no, that is not a conflict of interest because the Marine Stewardship Council is a non-governmental organization and it's a nonprofit. Therefore, somebody who works for a nonprofit can't have a conflict of interest which is totally absurd. Uh, the idea that somebody from Greenpeace 
could publish an article on the status of fish stocks and not have a conflict of interest given their organization has stated positions on the status of fish stocks is is ridiculous. I and I because I had never worked for the MSC, but I had worked for contractors who do Marine Stewardship Council certification. And so I and I think two other authors had to submit a retroactive saying, okay, we were paid to work on MSC certifications. Uh, but other than that, uh, it total it totally blew over. Okay. Oh, I thought they took you further than that. No, 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 no. Um, I mean, I, 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 uh, what, but what I do now is I, I have a standard, you know, so I publish about eight or 10 papers a year and I have just a standard thing saying, uh, you know, Ray Hilborn receives funding from environmental organizations, from environmental foundations, from governments, and from the fishing industry, all of these can be considered a potential conflict on any issue in fisheries. Uh, so uh, that's just that just completely covers me <laughs> on 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 every paper, um, you know. Because uh, yeah, it just you know I mean I that's part of my research strategy is to get funding from as broad a range of organizations as possible and ideally collaborate with people from uh uh so you know someone says oh well ray hillborn said that fish stocks are increasing it's it i didn't say that 20 individual authors published a paper that said that i was the first author but and among those authors were people who work for uh the nature conservancy the environmental defense fund um uh the wildlife conservation society so uh, that's that's proved very. Um, I mean, it wasn't an intentional strategy. I just wanted, you know, they, those people knew a lot, and we we wanted to work together. But it's it's provided a lot of uh, of protection from those, uh, you know, from Greenpeace Greenpeace in particular. Yeah, uh, a lot of the views this side of the big pond is that they're they're they work with flawed the word they use and you would have heard it in shetland a flawed science well um it depends on i mean it, that now it gets very specific there's certainly a lot of of flaws in 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 the, in the scientific process i mean there's a lot of totally ridiculous papers that get published um, that, uh, that, you know, it seems I and people I work with seem to spend a lot of time, uh, writing critiques of papers that make it through the peer review process. Um, but, you know, even mainstream science published by good scientists, good organizations turns out to be wrong in retrospect. Um, uh, that, that, you know, scientists have gotten assessments wrong. And there's no there's no question about that. But um, uh, and and but uh, I, I don't there's no systematic flaw. I don't I don't see any systematic flaw in in fishery science. But there's a lot of what I would call bogus science. <laughs> I mean that that uh, that you know my my perspective is if a good scientist who knows the subject 
can point out that it was wrong at the time it was published. In other words, the, the reviewers did not do their job or were not competent to do the job, then those papers should be retracted. And we had a we had a major success this year where a very high profile paper on marine protected areas, the journal actually retracted it, which says, we're sorry, we should not have published this paper. Um, but that's uh, almost unknown in, in the fisheries world. Um, it's happening more and more in the medical world, mostly due to true fraud where people are making up data. Um, but that that's, has so far not been an issue in the in the fish world. What's your views on marine protected areas? Well, marine protected areas are one potential tool in the uh, in the marine management toolbox. But uh, I see them as having a pretty limited use. I, my way I like to look at it is what is the threat and what is the solution. So uh first you know i think there's a growing consensus that for for coastal fisheries which would include almost all uk fisheries the two biggest threats are climate change and things that come from the land coastal development uh, uh sediment runoff pollution um and there's a, a very uh, a very significant paper that came out two years ago not by me or anyone I, I closely work with, that really showed that. It, uh, it, it showed that fishing for, uh, is really not a serious threat to marine ecosystems. Uh, fishing is a concern for a small number of species that are threatened or endangered. Um, so uh, whereas marine protected areas are being sold as the most effective form of ocean protection, and yet marine protected areas really have done nothing but move fishing around. They haven't affected climate change. They haven't affected coastal uh, impacts, uh, terrestrial impacts on, uh, on marine ecosystems. And they haven't reduced fishing pressure. All they've done is move it. So, uh, and, and, and the, marine, the marine protected area literature is just full of very poor science. So the most common thing they do to, to show that marine protected areas increase abundance is to compare what happens to the abundance inside an area when you close it to fishing to what happens outside. And certainly if fishing was going on in any intensity, the abundance inside will increase. Why did it increase? Because you're not catching them there, but you're fishing harder outside. So you can't use what happens outside as the control on what would have happened inside if you hadn't. Uh, so usually abundance goes up inside, abundance goes down outside because you're fishing harder outside. Um, so that's that's certainly one of my uh, my my serious concerns about uh, uh, and and reviewers just they just don't seem to apply good scientific analysis of those papers. I. Couldn't agree with you more eh, on that one. Eh, my, I come from a small fishing village in the east coast of Scotland, and eh, it's a small sea area, Firths, we call them. And eh, it's, it's not a closed, eh, but it's, it's a small area surrounded by land. We call it the Murray Firth. And when I was a kid, 
Now, I'm in my 70s now. When I was a kid, my father was a fisherman. And that Merryforth area, there was boats from right down one coast and right round the other. There was boats going out every day and catching fish in that in that area. Now there's not, they're all, there's, there's no boats left in that small fishing villages now. So, and any boat that ever goes into that area now, they never catch anything. <laughs> well, so question is, was it overfishing or was it impacts of terrestrial runoff or climate change? <laughs> It certainly wasn't overfishing because it's the fish. They stopped getting fish after the fishing stopped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, but one of one of the problems we have in this part of the world is uh, where the fishermen are losing ground, uh, fishing grounds to MPAs and renewables. I think that's true the world over. <laughs> well, not the world over, but in 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 most of the richer countries, um, both of both of those things are happening. Is that right? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, experience. certainly. You know, when I was in Shetland, uh, wind power was a, a you know space space allocation to wind power was a serious issue. Uh, it's it's certainly high on the fishermen's agenda in the U.S. and um, May, every, everywhere everywhere I, uh, that, that wind power is being proposed, uh, it's real concern that the fishermen are losing losing that space. Yeah. It's uh, there the the view the view here is they seem to they seem to want to put wind farms in either on, on land it's our nicest beauty spots or at sea it's our best fishing grounds mm. so, could i ask you about your publicized as repeatedly claiming greenpeace overstated amplify the negative effects of commercial fishing I'd like to discuss the real-world effects of greenwashing. Um, well, that's a, it, it, it's a, I mean, I, this, in this case, it's not a Greenpeace issue by, in any sense. I mean, Greenpeace is, does that, certainly. But um, it's, it's one of the things that, that really frustrates most of us who do fishery science is there's an incredible bias in what gets reported and uh, and what uh, even what makes it into the scientific literature that uh, essentially bad news sells and good news and factual news that saying that fisheries are doing well in many places doesn't sell. Um, so as I, I mentioned earlier, this paper came out in 2006 saying that if current trends continue, all fish stocks would be uh, collapse by 2048. And that made the BBC Evening News. It made the front page of the New York Times. It made the front page of the Washington Post. Um, we, this, the, many of those authors and I and a number of other people published a paper three years later saying, well, actually, it isn't true. 
fish stocks seem to be stable, not declining. And uh, uh, that did not make the front page of any newspaper. Uh, we, we, we actually tried. And in fact, the, uh, uh, we had a bottle of champagne bet. The, uh, the lead author who had published the first paper, he thought it would make the front page of the New York Times again. And he bet me a bottle of champagne. And I said, his name was Boris Worm. I said, Boris, this is never going to happen. It's, you know, bad news makes the front page, you know, sort of good news. Uh, no, and we were on, like we made the New York Times about page 23. I guarantee you we weren't on the BBC Evening News. Uh, and so to this day, you can find All Fish Will Be Gone by mid-century uh, all over the web. Um, so, um, you know, and, and, and so there's a very strong uh, bias in what gets published in scientific journals. And, uh, and there's a very strong bias in what gets covered in the media. Which is really, really frustrating for men who are, it's their livelihoods and their investments. And oh, yeah, yeah. No, and, and the problem is it really makes its way into uh, public policy. So, uh, you know, the U.S. has a very good fisheries management system, but it, it is also extremely cautious. Uh, and, and part of that is... Um, you know, no scientist has been embarrassed by under harvesting a fish stock. <laughs> but if you look at the scientists who were involved in the assessment of the cod in uh, in Canada, uh, it was catastrophic for them personally. I mean, they were uh, um, uh, and and uh, and so the science community has has been very, very cautious uh, in places where, uh, in, in terms of, of the, the, the strategy. So for instance, in the U S there's, uh, we, we can estimate for each stock a harvest rate that would produce long-term maximum yield. And so traditionally that would be your target harvest rate. Um, but the U S largely under advice from the scientists has adopted a policy of never fishing that hard. That is the absolute limit on hard you, how hard you can fish. Not that that should be the average level you fish, which is how you would maximize yield. So as a result, we, we I mean, and, and there are reasons you might want to do that. Uh, you, you maintain a higher stock biomass, et cetera. But uh, the result is that we, we, we are very, very cautious in how we manage fisheries because from the manager's point of view, you're not going to uh, you're 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 not going to be embarrassed by being cautious, but you might be embarrassed if you do uh, fish too hard. Yeah, totally get that. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I don't know if it was ever seen out in the U.S., but. You mentioned the prediction about 2048. That was used here in a documentary called Sea Spiracy. Oh, 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 yeah. I mean, see, yeah, and uh, Sea Spiracy uh, uh, was a very, very big, uh, big deal in the U.S. It was one of the most popular things on Netflix, and uh, it got millions and millions of viewers. Um, 
and it was it was one of the most bogus uh, um, quote documentaries ever 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 produced. Um, and we've we've spent we spent a lot of time on critiquing it and refuting it. And we had uh, we have a website that that at the time it came out we were averaging about twenty thousand views a month. And uh, the month after Seaspiracy came out, we had two hundred thousand views of people looking for reliable scientific information on the claims made in Seaspiracy. I mean, you know, it was it was ridiculous. They, you know, basically they claimed that no fishing is sustainable. Uh, um, and 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 I have to say, even some of the most uh, anti-fishing uh, uh, scientists uh, who who were sort of um, came out saying, no, seaspiracy is not true. Um, there, you know, there, there were a, a, a couple, well, there, I wouldn't even call them reputable scientists, but there were a couple, a couple people who would claim to be scientists who really supported its message. But 99% uh, of people who know anything about fisheries in the oceans uh, really rejected the claims of seaspiracy, but it was very effective. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, how they could quite willingly uh, put, uh, I mean, endanger the lives and occupations of millions of people around the world just for veganism. Yeah, yeah, no. It's been really interesting talking to you today, Ray. I'm very much at one with your. I'm very much at one with your views. That's for sure, and uh, it's refreshing to actually speak to somebody, with scientist or doctor or professor, uh, that actually has such a, a realistic down to earth view rather than. So it's it's very very refreshing. Well, I, I mean, my my perspective on these issues is not in any sense unique to me. And there's certainly many scientists who work in fisheries, and probably most in the UK, that would uh, would tell you something very similar. Um, I mean, one of the problems is that those who work for the government agencies usually are not free to talk in the way that I can. Uh, but uh, there are certainly other academics in the UK I can point you to who are familiar with these subjects and would, uh, would tell you uh, similar things, but they would know much more about specific UK fisheries or fisheries issues than I do. Yeah, no, but it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear. Yeah. And uh, when uh, see with the with the salmon, you're saying is it sockeye? You said was the biggest. Yeah, that was the most valuable salmon fishery in the United States, and we we just had the best the best return in history. Oh, is, is coho as big? Oh no, nothing. I mean. Uh, a few percent of the sockeye. A coho is not a not a big wild species. I mean, it's it's significant in some places, but I think the total catch of coho salmon might be five percent of the catch of sockeye salmon. Yeah, 
yeah it's also not as good <laughs> okay okay i i was we've holidayed holidayed a lot and when our family were younger in florida and any of the seafood restaurants we would go to there majority of their fish came from seattle yeah yeah well that's where the, we're the home of the alaska fishing fleet and uh that's where uh where a lot of it comes uh you know all all the north pacific fish come through seattle it must be a massive uh, operation there as a port and oh yeah yeah i mean both the the salmon fishery and the pollock fishery are both pretty high volume fisheries and uh i uh so just for so in bristol bay where the big the big sockeye fishery there's about 10 processing plants that uh they process got a, i mean we, we promise we do stupid things in pounds and not tons but uh let me think so if you do 300 million well let's see no let's say the average we did uh 60 million fish this year uh average weight of let's say three kilos 60 that would be one point uh 180 million kilos would be 180,000 tons um yeah 180,000 tons in uh in three weeks because it's a very short season wow yeah is that right yeah and uh uh and i went to one of the, the biggest pollock plant and they do uh several million pounds a day so uh several million pounds would be uh, divided by 2000 more or less uh would be uh uh well if they do three million pounds a day then that would be one and a half a hundred oh 150 uh <clears throat> gotta do my arithmetic here uh, three million. Uh, anyway, these are it, it's just these gi gigantic processing plants. So, you know, they're they're volumes that uh, that certainly I don't think the UK has seen in decades. <laughs> oh, that's for sure. Yeah. What, what's your views on Alaskan pollock as a fish to eat? Uh, I don't eat it a lot because I, I can afford more expensive fish, but uh, it's 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 very good and it's very low environmental impact. I mean, I, I, I recently went to one of the plants with my wife that was uh, producing the value added products, you know, the, the uh, fish and chips and things like that. And I, I was very impressed by um, how good it was. Um, and you can't do, you can't find, uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's just such a low impact fish. I've got a, I've, I've got a, um, a slide I use to compare a Pollock burger, which is what you would get if you went to a McDonald's in the US and got a fish sandwich. Compare that to the so-called impossible burger that's made from plants. And uh, a Pollock burger has about a quarter of the carbon footprint and about a hundredth of the water demand of an impossible burger. You know, and the idea that a vegan diet by eating something like an impossible burger is lower impact than a fish diet is just totally bogus. I love the term impossible burger. Mm. 
You had a fisherman's friend using that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, well, Ray, I'd like to just maybe fold up and thank you very much for uh, coming on with us. It's really been fascinating. And I, I love your, your views on things. And it's it's refreshing to hear your views on it. So thank you. Okay. No, it's been a pleasure. And... Uh... Yeah, get in touch with me again if you want to talk again. Thank you for listening to Seafood Matters Podcast. You can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can join me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for at Seafood Matters Podcast. If you have any questions or episode suggestions, please email me at jim at seafoodmatterspodcast.com or get in touch through my website, seafoodmatterspodcast.com.